everyone, it's Lucas and Anita. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. So we were pretty busy with the merge last week, but um, this week we're talking to Seth Gins, who's head of Liquid Investments, and he's also a managing partner making venture investments at CoinFund. And part of the reason we wanted to chat with him was that he spent most of his career in traditional finance at an asset manager. So we kind of wanted to get his perspective on things like the merge, but also different aspects of the crypto market during this downturn, since he sort of sees both the token side and the startup side in terms of private investments in the crypto space. So the advantage of doing a couple podcast episodes a week is that we get to chronicle everything that's happening minute to minute. But every so often, it's nice to take a step back. And Seth was a great person to talk to, just kind of like telling us where liquid tokens are at right now, where the startup investment scene is looking like right now. And we had a pretty great conversation. Yeah, we talked about layer ones and how they're challenging incumbents like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is always a fun topic for us. So we're uh, ready to dive into the interview. Let's get to it. Seth, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to chat with you. Just to start, we gave a little background on you, but you're focused on liquid investments at CoinFund. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about where that falls in the broader ecosystem of CoinFund and sort of where you're spending your time versus other people at the firm. Yeah. So at CoinFund, we believe that the set of investment opportunities in crypto really spans both traditional private investments as well as liquid. A lot of the projects in the crypto ecosystem end up having liquid tokens very early in their life cycle, equivalent to kind of a Series A, Series B. So we see liquid investments as being very complementary with the venture activities of the firm. Our entire research process is actually organized around co mingling uh, the research theses, insights that we're bringing from what's happening on the venture side and what's happening on the liquid side, because what's happening on the venture side is really what we're going to see start to move the liquid markets in the next three, six, 12 months. My specific role is running our liquid fund, but then I also have a, a role across the entire firm. So I'm kind of wearing three hats, liquid fund or liquid activities broadly. I'm involved in the investment committees for all of our venture funds and then management of CoinFund itself. Cool. Yeah. Wearing many hats. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about the liquid markets just being closely interwoven with the venture markets. We're a few months into this bear market. There's still a lot of uncertainty out there. You look, there are not as many deals happening still. A lot of people are like, oh, September is going to be when it picks back up. But now that we're here, like, how does that affect what you do? And does that put a greater emphasis on the liquid side? You know, what we love about having a balanced set of opportunities across CoinFund is when liquid markets represent the best opportunities, we can lean more into the liquid markets. When venture markets represent the best opportunity, we can lean more into there. The funds obviously all have different mandates, different periods of time over which they're investing. But that flexibility allows us to not kind of force things into the venture portfolio because yeah. we want to or need to deploy over a certain period of time. We can really be opportunistic. And again, we're being opportunistic with what we believe is one of the most holistic views across the space. You're missing a big part of the crypto ecosystem if you're not touching venture. Yeah. And likewise, you're missing a big part of the crypto ecosystem if, if you're not seeing how things are valued in the liquid markets, if you're not seeing 
how competitive dynamics are changing, what type of competitive attack vectors are emerging within the liquid markets and how that could be relevant for some of the early stage startups. So Mm -hmm. we think just that situational awareness is so, so important. So, I mean, speaking a little bit more broadly, like what are you noticing in the crypto venture environment out there? So we've seen the latest. So the high level start is the latest stage was really hit first from a valuation perspective and, and hit the hardest. And that makes sense, right? Because that's not the liquid markets that we're focusing on, but those are the the businesses that we're planning on IPOs. You have the tech market, the overall IPO window freeze, certainly the tech component of that. You've seen valuations re-rate on an expectation that cash is going to have to last longer, and obviously valuations have gone down quite a bit. That hasn't rippled through to the rest of the stage stack as quickly as we might have thought. Okay. Just in terms of valuation haircuts? or In in terms of valuation haircuts, that's right. So we've seen valuation haircuts, but I'd say they kind of step down in that middle stage. I'd say you see more protocols that are raising at their prior valuation with an aim of extending their runway. And then I'd say earlier stage, you're just seeing a step down in where valuations are for kind of either the team has just come together and we're launching that like true pre-seed yeah. type round or that next stage right after that where you're not sure if they have product market fit yet, but great team, some great early momentum on the BD side. I'd say those valuations, the, those initial out of the gate valuations, I would call them, have come down mm. a little bit, maybe 15 to, to 30%, but they're not where traditional tech at that stage was two or three years ago. They're not where crypto was at that stage two or three years ago either. And and I'm not sure they're going to get there. Okay. I think one of the really interesting dynamics in crypto is every cycle we see network valuations for protocols step up by an order of magnitude. I don't think it will keep being an order of magnitude each cycle, but they take big steps up. And each time you take that step up, you have a validation of this new valuation range, which means you you end up having people who are thinking about how to value their early stage startup, referencing the latest mark that you were getting in the last bull market. So mm-hmm. you end up having, it's kind of like what's possible, right? Where can we go? If we're successful, and then everyone probability adjusts that, but but you end up with a valuation that's anchored or benchmarked to a higher liquid market valuation because of that kind of expansion in valuations with each cycle. Is that where you think the resilience is coming from at some of the earlier stages? I think that's spot on. You're seeing, and there's certain parts, like if you kind of pull out like what's getting the highest valuations, what's getting lower valuations. We're certainly seeing the most resiliency in valuations tied to early stage base layers. So if you think about the technology stack in crypto, these are the new layer ones. That's right. New layer ones, the potential competitors to Ethereum. If you look at the last bull market, we saw valuations for challenger base layers get into the call it five to 75 billion range, setting aside Ethereum and Bitcoin. And that's now led to early stage 
protocols in that part of the tech stack saying, well, if this is what our market potential is, then we should think about our pre-seed or seed valuation in a different framework from what we were using in prior cycles. Right. I've been really interested to see all of these new layer ones popping up and getting a lot of traction. And I guess now that the merge has been completed or the main part of it has been completed for Ethereum, where do you see the demand for new layer ones going? I mean, this is like a big issue within the Ethereum community that's sort of been resolved, right? So do you think that other layer ones even still stand a chance? Well, so remember what happened with the merge was we went from proof of work to proof of stake consensus, but but we haven't addressed the scaling problems yet. And sure. a lot of what challenger base layers are looking to address is scaling. Ethereum has a lot of scaling solutions on its roadmap, both internally as well as externally with layer two scaling protocols. So I think there's still room for both challenger blockchains that address scaling in novel ways. There's some interesting dynamics happening a little bit above the base layer in the tech stack in cross-chain interoperability. And one of the, I'd say, non-obvious dynamics when you start to have more frictionless cross-chain interoperability is that you start to commoditize parts of the base layer. And the way that base layers Mm -hmm. respond is by specializing. So there's probably also going to be room in the future for base layers. And a lot of these are probably already out in the wild, out in existence, but you'll see new ones as well that specialize in particular functions and just do those really well. And that's certainly the basis for a new base layer to arise, kind of pitching themselves as being the best base layer for executing a a certain technology function. And just curious as a follow-up to that, are there any specific new layer ones that you think are really promising right now? I mean, we have a number of investments across the layer one ecosystem. One that we've been involved with for a while, which I think is just starting to hit a a bunch of really interesting catalysts is the Flow blockchain. And what's interesting about Flow, so this is out of Dapper Labs, where we were an early investor. And what's interesting about Flow is they've really over-indexed to fantastic traditional entertainment and sports business development. And they've pulled in a bunch of great partners. NBA Top Shot, which Dapper and Flow introduced almost two years ago, really kicked off the latest iteration of excitement around NFTs. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is Flow actually went permissionless right in the heart of the bear market. I think it was in May of this year. So it was kind of lost in the the de-risking and noise of the bear market. But we think with Flow, their specialization is around the connectivity that they have in entertainment and sports and media and really being hyper-focused on specializing for those BD use cases. One thing that's kind of interesting to me, and Flow is a great example. You know, I know that all these things are kind of like the startups were the creator of the blockchain, and then once they go permissionless, it's a little different. But a lot of these initial blockchain creators are raising a lot more venture than something like Ethereum did, which didn't raise much at all. But I guess like you look at like Aptos, they've raised a couple billion. You look at Dapper, they've raised quite a bit of money. Do you think that that kind of changes? It obviously changes the development because they've got more cash on hand. But do you think it kind of changes the ethos of a lot of these networks just from having you know? 
substantial venture backers. <laughs> I'll, I'll answer this by saying I, I'm an ethos pluralist. I, I think there's room for <laughs> a lot of different ethos. Fair enough. And it's important to have a lot of different ethos. So there's a, a lot of concern around a loss of decentralization across different base layers. There are some new right. vectors of centralization that start to emerge when ETH goes from proof of work to proof of stake. And the view that we take is there's room for all of these approaches. All of these approaches have very strong product market fit mm -hmm. for specific applications, right? If you're going to focus on the gaming sector, well, for gaming, censorship resistance, is it's a lower priority, yeah. whereas throughput is a much higher priority. And, and there are probably a number of other attributes that are higher priorities. So I think the venture ethos is very powerful. I, I remember a an interview with I think it was an interview with Fred Wilson a few years ago where he said, you know, if Ethereum was a venture-backed startup, they would have had to have moved so much right. more quickly. Merge would have happened four years ago and maybe that's not right. done well. <laughs> well, that that's the thing, right? Yeah. So double-edged sword, right? Yeah. Maybe it would have been pushed out too early. And there's so much, what, what's fascinating about crypto is there's so much path dependency. So the merge came out today, meaning over the, the last week. And I think it's entered at a pretty good time for Ethereum to be transitioning to proof of stake, to be regaining some industry focus. Mm -hmm. If it had come out a year ago or 13, 14 months ago, there was so much excitement around some challenger base layers that were emerging, yeah. whether it was Solana or AVAX, that I think it would have been coming into a different environment. Whereas here we are now a year after that, a little over a year after that. And just by virtue, I mean, all of these challenger ecosystems, Solana, AVAX, they're doing very well. They're continuing to grow nicely. But just by virtue of having the merge happen in more of a bear market, a crypto winter, there's more attention that, that's put on it. That incremental developer that's saying, mm -hmm. you know, where, where should I think about? The first thing they see is this technical advancement that's happening at ETH, the fact that Maybe they were delayed in shipping, but now they are shipping. So that, that path dependency is super important as well. Mm -hmm. You've shared a lot about more emerging layer ones, and we've talked about Ethereum now, but I'm curious if we can chat a little bit about Bitcoin, OG layer one, right? And I read your blog post from when you joined CoinFund, and you had said at that time that you were super bullish on the Bitcoin price. And I'm wondering, do you still feel that way? So I think Bitcoin is the pristine collateral in the space. I think it's very important to the space. And I'm very bullish on Bitcoin's price over the, the medium to long term. Do I think that Bitcoin is going to outperform a lot of these other tech-driven base layers or other parts of the ecosystem? I think it's TBD. It depends a little bit on what macro environment we're in. If we're in a macro environment where you don't have a risk on impulse, where people are looking for defensive trades, I think we could see Bitcoin continue to outperform that could be outperformance in a downside node. Like people looking to use it as a hedge is, is sort of what you're saying? Well, people looking to use it as a uh, place for a flight to safety into mm. to Bitcoin. Sure. In the up node, I think it probably outperforms. So if we go into a very strong risk on environment, I think it probably outperforms just about anything in traditional markets. But I think there are going to be a lot of tech-driven opportunities, partially just by virtue of the fact that they're a lot smaller 
right? They're earlier in their life cycle and have more room to de-risk and accrete in value that would outperform. So in general, I, I think of Bitcoin as being the lowest risk, lowest reward way of playing the space over the long run. But that can be, if, if you don't want to go out on the risk spectrum in crypto, that can be very, very attractive. And I, I think Bitcoin also serves this role of kind of being the first port of call for a lot of new investors in the space. There are more and more people coming to ETH initially or, or to other places, but I think the bulk still come to Bitcoin as the first place to really learn about the space, understand what open source blockchain means. So I think it's incredibly important and I think it will do very well, but I think there's also the ability to do fundamental research on the broader ecosystem and find opportunities, find protocols that will outperform it over the, the medium to long term. Do you feel like, are you one of the people who feels like the flippening is uh, inevitable with ETH overtaking Bitcoin or, you know, controversial question, but I'm, I'm curious because you're talking a lot about different layer ones and kind of programmatic blockchains. I mean, snapshot today, I think the flippening is likely, but then I could see a macro environment where Bitcoin continues to gain ground on ETH. So both of them going up. Mm -hmm. I could see a macro environment where ETH flips, but the flip is not a permanent flippening. So I'd say base case today would be that post-merge, we let the dust settle. We've had this little sell-off coming out after the merge. I think the dust settles, and then you start having more and more probably traditional finance deployments to ETH, and mm. that could drive more of a, a differential bid in ETH in the near term and drive the flippening. And again, if the next regime that we're in is a very positive risk-on regime, I would think that would be one that would favor Ethereum's outperformance of Bitcoin during that regime. Whether that's permanent, I don't have a high conviction view right now. Mm. So Seth, given that you've spent most of your career in the traditional finance world, I would love to get your perspective on a deep question, which is, do you think that Bitcoin has fundamentals? So I think Bitcoin's fundamentals are very similar to gold. So I, I think it has real product market fit, but it's as a non-sovereign store of value. And I think non-sovereign store of value is going to only become more and more important over the next few years. I mean, we see everything that's happening in the world today. And I think there's a lot of attractiveness to a, a store of value that is not associated with an individual country or group of countries. So I, I think it really has strong product market fit there. And interesting. Whether or not that is fundamentals, there, there are a lot of on-chain fundamentals tied to Bitcoin, but those are more, they're really interesting and insightful with regard to what the holder base is doing. They're more tied to flows, though. The real fundamentals that drive value in Bitcoin are the deteriorating fundamentals of sovereign currencies. And then I think you work with Bitcoin as kind of the ultimate collateral within crypto. And that's where you kind of build the value in a non-sovereign way for ETH and for a lot of the tech-driven infrastructure that's being built on ETH and other challenger-based layers. I've got a couple of follows on that, but one, one of them, yeah. it's been an interesting quarter for companies that have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Tesla Tesla selling off a bunch, and then MicroStrategy, Sailor stepping down, and now he's got a tax fraud thing against him. Like, there's, there's a lot going on all over there. But I guess, like, those are probably, those were the two biggest corporate holders of Bitcoin. Like, I guess when you, you know, not like MicroStrategy seems to be selling off or anything. If anything, they sound like they'll buy more. But 
when you look at those two, do you think that that's a trend that has any chance of going on or did that kind of have its moment for this bull market? And then we'll have to wait for another bull market for that to kind of catch on again. So what's interesting is that was a totally unexpected okay. trend. Mm-hmm. Companies adding adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet. It, it was a very welcome trend. Doesn't seem like something necessary, necessarily. That's yeah. right. And and by the way, so we, we still need the accounting rules around having Bitcoin on balance sheets are fairly onerous in the US. So okay. that makes it where you have to mark it down and then you can't mark it up. Gotcha. So I think there's going to be some hesitancy around that unless there's a around doing that on a go forward basis, unless there's a change in the accounting rules, which I think we will see eventually, although I haven't been as close to the conversations around that recently, or if there's a a real currency crisis around the dollar, which A, hope isn't around the corner, and and B, (laughs) I I don't think that there's signs that that's around the corner. We're obviously in a period of very powerful dollar strength right now. That's actually becoming the problem, that the dollar is a little bit of a wrecking ball globally. Mm -hmm. I think the real story with corporate America with traditional equities and crypto in the next cycle is going to be about business development. So I think the next cycle is really about traditional entertainment businesses, traditional general consumer businesses, traditional financial firms figuring out how to engage in business development with crypto businesses and open up crypto activity to their user bases, either through DeFi or through NFTs. So I think it's going to be much more of an operating business focused engagement rather than a balance sheet, or I should say Mm. like a balance sheet in a vacuum type of engagement. Because obviously like operating businesses, you'll, you'll generate a bunch of crypto and like you could certainly decide to keep that crypto on your balance sheet, which is all the more reason why we want to, to make sure that those accounting rules get clarified and adjusted. Yeah. But I think the real story is going to be about operating co-BD, which is going to be okay. massive both for the traditional businesses and massive for the crypto protocols as well. Interesting. On the note of sort of forward-looking predictions and thoughts that you have about the space, I want to wrap with a question for you about what you're seeing in the space from other investors who are like yourself, namely who have spent a bunch of time working in traditional finance or other industries and then sort of made this pivot to full-time crypto. I guess, do you think that they're going to stick around now that the markets are looking a lot different? And, you know, or, or, or do you see like your peers thinking about jumping ship? So not only are they sticking around, but we're seeing the flow of people from traditional finance to crypto accelerate. And I think a big part of that is you have all markets down right now. So all markets are down, but people are saying, okay, everything is down. But when risk appetite recovers, what do I think is going to have the most upside? And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to not be steered directly over to crypto. So we're seeing a lot of engagement from the traditional tech world from the traditional finance world. These are investing roles. These are operational roles. So we have a few operational positions open and we're getting a lot of amazing resumes. And most of those, as you would assume, are people coming from the traditional finance world. But I heard a really interesting anecdote last week, which was this is a firm that looks at hedge funds, invests across a bunch of different hedge funds. And they said, we're seeing a number of decks a week about crypto sleep within traditional hedge funds. And they said there there are a few reasons why they're doing it. One reason is they think that crypto is, is going to have great return profile coming out of the downturn. So they want to get the operational infrastructure in place to be able to invest. 
the moment they want to invest. But the second reason is retention. So you have young analysts that are passionate about crypto, want to be able to invest in crypto. And if you're not offering that to them within your traditional hedge fund, they're going to leave for crypto funds. So you're actually seeing a lot of traditional funds allocate a small amount of their portfolio uh, to crypto, partially because they want to make sure that they can retain some of their best talent. So I think you're seeing continued interest and that interest is actually accelerating. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Well, hey, thanks so much for diving into all these different topics. It was great having you on the show and I hope to have you back on here sometime soon. Awesome. Lucas and Ia, great to talk with you. Likewise. Thanks, Seth. We'll be back every week with interviews with the experts in the Web3 space. Catch Anita, Jackie, and myself every Thursday for the latest in crypto news. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and more from our guests can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Chain underscore Reaction. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening.